Hey there, friends. How are you? Good to see you, so to speak. This is episode 133 of No Guitar Is Safe. And if I haven't met you yet, well, my name is Jude Gold, and this is the guitar show where guitar heroes plug in. And today, a true hero of California hard rock and metal and 80s rock to the present. He formed LA Guns when he was just a teenager in like 1983, and they're going strong. In fact, they have three new records out, including a live record, and Tracy has reunited with his power singer, Phil Lewis. How did they do that? How did they pull it all back together, man? It's it's really inspiring. Whether you're in bands or just whatever projects you do, but rebuilding stuff, reconnecting, and then so much other stuff that I want to give you a little roadmap before we head over, ironically, to Denmark. That's right. Even though Tracy grew up probably mere blocks from where I'm standing here in LA. This is, I mean, this is his old stomping grounds. He's been for most of lockdown in Denmark. And yeah, we're going to get over there in just a second. You hear that copter warming up, but I just want to give you a roadmap to all the stuff we're going to get into. We open with talking about his brand new six string weapon, this guitar from Kramer called the Gunstar Voyager. Badass. Then he shares with you, like, what do you need to know if you get your own guitar deal? Maybe it's a gear deal, or maybe they're making you your own signature model guitar. He's got some ideas for you and stuff to look out for and and stuff to look for. And from there, man, speaking of deals, we look at his deal with Bernie Rico, the the late great guy behind BC Rich Guitars. I always love Bernie stories. He's a legend here in SoCal. And then we hear about some of... Tracy's wild touring days and the Sunset Strip, so much, all that stuff, Hurricane Nirvana, what does it all mean? Steel Panther, how does it all fit together over the past three or four decades of hard rock from this part of the world? Tracy's got the perspective. We hear about Sunbomb, which is uh, his new record with the blazing lead singer of Striper, Michael Sweet. That's coming out May 14th. And, of course, so much other stuff. How do you record a heavy metal album in your living room with a head rush processor? Or how do you get the most sound out of a violin bow when you're cranking a Les Paul through a fire-breathing tube amp? Man, we get into all of it. And uh, it's brought to you by Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. Fantastic guitar content since 1967. Guitar Player. Play better. Sound better. And I hope you guys keep playing better and sounding better. You know what you got to do. Keep it alive till you're 95. Tracy Guns in the house, man. So close, but yet so far away. What the heck are you doing in Denmark? You know, I'm only supposed to be here like six months out of 12 months a year. Um, I, I'm, I married a Danish woman and we have a one-year-old child here, but we go back and forth, you know, we the both places, but the pandemic hit two weeks after our, our son was born here. So they kept canceling all our flights to go back to LA and all this stuff. So I've been here like 10 months out of the last 13 months. It's crazy. Incredible. What a great place to be stuck. I love it there. I've been there twice, had a fantastic time, a wonderful musical place too. Like we always have this thing in our set where we have the crowd sing along. Yeah. And when we came to Denmark, oh, we yeah. break it down and they sing the song. It's called Count on Me. Yeah. And we're like, hey, you guys sing it. They were like in perfect harmony. It was like the most music. It was like angels. We all looked at each other and like had a tear in our eyes on stage. <laughs> we're like, oh, yeah. I mean, Danish here. people, when it comes to. Audio, recording, music, there is no messing around. I mean, these people are serious about it. And, you know, when they love something, they, they don't hold back. You know, this, this myth that, you know, Scandinavian people are reserved and they're not reserved. They're smart. There's a big difference. I'm, man, I'm Scandinavian basically or Northern European, but I got a lot yeah. of Finnish relatives. Yeah. Not that reserved. No. <laughs> yeah. No, my, my, my ex is Finnish, but my new wife's Danish. Well, congratulations on your son's first birthday. I know that was just on Friday. Yeah, so. yeah, awesome. He made it. We all made it. <laughs> 
So you're stuck there with a beautiful wife, a beautiful new son, and a beautiful new guitar. Yeah. Tell us what what tell us about your brand new signature model. Well, this is the Kramer Gunstar Voyager, so it's it's part of the the old Voyager collection, but it, it's really different. And I'll run through what it is really quick. I play Les Pauls, and you know Kramer, uh, Gibson owns Kramer. So I went to NAMM two years ago, and Al John, who's in charge of Epiphone and now also Kramer, pulls me in this room, and there's like 200 Kramers on the wall. And I'm like, what the hell's going on here? He's like, oh, man, you know. And so long story short, you know, do you want to do a signature model? I'm like, I've never played a Kramer in my life. <laughs> you know, like, 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 okay, but, you know, we have to come up with something that makes sense because, you know, I mean, Kramer's kind of a legacy guitar, you know, it's like, you know, Eddie Van Halen and stuff. So what I came up with is since I play Les Pauls, I've always had like this kind of hot rod guitar as well, being, you know, an 80s shreddy kind of guy, um, you know, Charvel's BC Rich Gunslinger. That was my very first signature model ever when I was really young. Yep. So, you know, we have a set neck like a Les Paul. And beautiful. instead of ebony, we went with maple so it looks like a classic star body kind of bolt-on guitar um and then i have super low output uh burst buckers or pro buckers really burst bucker three burst bucker two um so they sound exactly like my les pauls and then i have the coil taps in each so so you know i can yeah. go from basically just really quick just like classic kind of eddy sound and then you just go here you know with a single coil neck and it's just like i can do everything on this guitar you know and it had to be that all-purpose thing to you know come out straight out of the gate with a signature model what's so different about it well you know you can play like david gilmore or dimebag Take your pick. They can do. They can do all that stuff. Yeah, it's beautiful, and I, I would imagine it's Les Paul scale neck. It's not actually. It's so not it actually we like tried. a Kramer scale, like twenty five and a half. It's Kramer scale. It's uh whatever twenty five and a half, or because we had some problems to put a neck pickup in a star body with a set neck. There just kind of isn't enough meat there, and right. so we tried with the Les Paul scale and put it in there and. There was just so, it wasn't strong enough. You know, it, it was a total failure. I didn't think that we were going to be able to do the guitar. So we switched everything around in here and we decided to go with the, you know, strat scale uh, neck. And then it worked. I mean, I don't know technically why it worked, but it works and it's a fantastic guitar. And you got a little Floyd Rose on there or something? Yeah, and it's a floater. So, you know, everybody that wants to do this. Yeah. That's what it does. <laughs> That's great. Can we hear a little bit more of that guitar? Please. Yeah, you It sounds fantastic. Yeah. So today you're just running, obviously, direct, maybe through a little Boss thing, I think. Yeah, I'm using just the, the Boss GT. And the only reason I'm using that is because I was too lazy to get my head rush out. Oh, cool, man. So the, yeah, that congratulations on that great guitar. You have just been so busy with rock and roll since basically age 18 in the Crazy. 80s. What a life. Now, LA Guns, you seem to be having a new renaissance here. Yeah. I love this album Made in Milan, the live record. Oh, the live one. On Always. What that. is it with live record? When when a when a live record turns out good, they're spectacular. But I I have tons of live recordings of us that are not spectacular. <laughs> well, there's something about it when you just hear the guitar cranked up. Yeah in a big room and yeah. a crowd reacting and you're just you're still that 18 year old kid rocking out yeah. 
it's magic, you know, and that's how I learned how to play guitar, you know, was playing along with The Song Remains the Same and, and uh, Ted Nugent, Double Live Gonzo, Aerosmith, Live Bootleg, um, UFO, Strangers in the Night, Frampton Comes Alive. That's how I learned how to play. So, and you play us play for us the first lick you really remember playing and loving as a kid. Well, there, there's there's two because my uncle showed me. You know, uh, Pinball Wizard and D, and then of course, whole lot of love. You know, anybody can play that. Yeah. It's great every time I hear it, every time it comes on, a whole lot of love is always killer, every time. It's true. I mean, I even feel that way. So many people are sick of Stairway to Heaven, but every time I'm driving in the car or something and this song comes on, it's a masterpiece. Yeah, forget it. never it. gets old to me. Forget it. If, if, if you don't like Stairway to Heaven, you're jealous. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Now, here's a question for you. Have well, there's a brilliant tweet from my friend Andy Wood, great guitar player and mandolinist. He he wrote, "No guitar has sold more less Pauls than Jimmy Page's Telecaster." Yeah, which is hilarious. Well, and as fact, a big Jimmy Page fan, have you ever gone deep on the Telecaster or yeah, get of course, any of course, because more than being a guitar player, when you're obsessed with Jimmy Page, you become what you think is a master artist in the studio. You know, it's like, well, I'm a Jimmy Page fan, so yeah, I'm. I could do anything in the studio, but it's true, you know, with with a particularly a Dan Electro or a Telecaster, you really can get a heavy tone that cuts, you know, not twangy, but that cuts that like you know, kind of like custard pie kind of a thing where you just think it's the Les Paul into a Marshall, but but it it, it really isn't, you know, it, it's it's a lot of deception there, you know. It, that statement is, is so very true. However, it depends which record you get into. You know, if you're doing Zeppelin one, we all know that's the tally. But Zeppelin two is all Les Paul. It's it's a hundred percent. But then again, are you sure? Like when I hear this, that to me sounds like a Telecaster. I mean, I could I don't know for sure, but it is such a specific sound that song. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it doesn't for, sound for... like anything to me. Like. Like, it's yeah. funny you brought that up because it came on yesterday. We just got title. You know, we're, we're always 10 years late in, in my household. And uh, all the Zeppelin stuff is master quality. So Heartbreaker came on. And like for the billionth time I've heard it in my life, I'm like, what is that? Like, what is, yeah. what is, what is that sound? <laughs> like, I don't have any idea exactly what he did on that. Or like, yeah. Like I can't, or even like it seems there's such that specific treble pickup, but I, I yeah, I would never know for sure. But yeah, Telecaster I mean, is the greatest a great thing ingredient. about it. The greatest thing about Zeppelin yeah. is the mystery and the guessing and the second guessing, and you know. But there's definitely like for example, if you put a telly on and play anything Zeppelin through the right Marshall, it just sounds like it. It's just like wow, you know. What, that's it, <laughs> you know, but uh, but you know the the folklore says that Jimmy had the the coil taps, coil splits really early in the Les Paul. So there's that too. I just don't know. Yeah, I would I would buy that for sure. That seems reasonable. Yeah. Now I love the the ghost flames on your new <laughs> guitar. It reminds me kind of of the uh, the BC Rich that you had the Gunstar. Yeah, yeah. This one I is the Gunstar. Like that, you know. Um, it was a shop called Guitars R Us on Sunset when I was a kid, until I was an adult. And I was really good friends with the owners, Howie Huberman and, and Albert. And um, they were really good friends with Grover Jackson uh, when I was a kid, you know, when I was like 13, 14. And they had a Wayne Charvel. This is basically a knockoff of this guitar I'm going to tell you about. They had a Wayne Charvel star, a white guitar with yellow and orange flames and the white was sparkly and it was a set neck and they let me take it home for like a year this guitar and i was obsessed with that guitar it was so cool eventually i had to give it back and i always swore you know like someday i'm gonna have that guitar so when this idea came up you know like 35 years later 
that was kind of what was in my head. I had this one guitar one time that I never forgot about, and let's replicate it. Now, the deal with the Flames was is I really wanted to do the 80s graphic thing, but I really don't look that cute anymore. You know, like I can't really like pull that off. So I talked to, to Al John specifically, and I said, how can we do Flames so they're not so obnoxious, you know? And he goes, oh, we could just do ghost flames. You know, it was as simple as that. And I'm like, ghost flames? He goes, he goes yeah, where you kind of see them, you kind of don't. And he, they did a mock-up, like, you know, within a couple of days. And I said, I'm like, yeah, 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 that's that. So this, I love this guitar, man. That's great. <laughs> it's, it's the guitar. That, it's like the guitar I wanted since I had to give that other one back. Now that you've been through having a couple of signature guitars, mm-hmm. do you have any advice for up-and-coming guitars who might suddenly the first time be offered a signature guitar? Like, what's the process like? What have you learned from that? What are things you should ask for or look out for? Well, there's a couple There's a couple different things that can happen, right? Um, my first one was the Gunslinger, and I was just 20 years old when, when that happened, and Bernie Rico had already had the design. You know, he's like, he wanted to compete with whatever... Eddie Van Halen was playing at that time in 1987. And he said, it's a single humbucker, Floyd Rose, you know, Maple. And he wanted to have a price point where he could, you know, he could wholesale them for like $5.99, you know, handmade guitars. And that they would sell for under a thousand bucks. That was the whole idea. And he said, he said, hey man, you know, cause I was playing Mockingbirds and Bitches. I had like all the classic stuff. He goes, he goes, he goes, I know you play a Charvel on the album. I know, I know you did, you know. And I go, yeah. I go, I, you know, I, I love that Eddie Van Halen style, you know. He goes, well, that's what I'm talking about. This is like an Eddie Van Halen. I remember the whole conversation, you know. And he goes, he goes, he goes we can call it, you know, gun something, you know. He goes, gunslinger even. You know, I go, yeah. You know, I'm 20 years old. I'm like, yeah, sure, fine, cool. So I didn't have really anything to do with the design other than I love that design because it made sense to me. And, um, and I remember the deal. He said, he goes, he goes, if you do this for me, you could have anything you want, any guitars you want forever. And I was like 20 years old. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's go. <laughs> you know, so, so I never got a cent, but I got so many BC rich guitars over the years, you know, even he licensed it to somebody in New Jersey, the name, and then he came back. And when he came back, you know, they called me, Hey, we're back. You know, what do you want? And I'm like, wow, okay. You know, so I continued with him till he died. And then um, the next thing was with Dean, with Dean Guitars, a guy, Josh Maloney over there, he wanted to do something. He just, you know, for whatever reason, just thought I was the coolest guy, you know. And again, I was stuck. I'm like, well, you know, I mean, I like the Cadillac. I like this. I like that, you know. He goes, yeah, but you know, what can you do? And I was, and at the time I was playing a 51 Nocaster, you know, and, and I like, well, I'm, I'm playing this 51 Nocaster. It's like, and my 59 less, like, you know, like you can't beat that. He goes, he goes, what do you want? You know? And so we came up with this telly with a Floyd and, but 51 Nocaster reissue pickups. And that was a money deal. You know, I still get royalties on that. And, and that was cool. And then later before Elliot died, we did a V. Uh, really nice V that uh, they're still both available. But the thing is, with with the signature guitar, you know, times are different now. You know what I mean? And I know that some young players, they do get to kind of do stuff like that. And, you know, there's some kind of appeal to somebody somewhere. You, you know, make sure you play the guitar. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, 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 that's kind of the thing, you know. It's like getting an endorsement with Nike and, and, you know, wearing somebody else's shoes or something, you know, you don't want to do that. And like, like, for example, right now I have this guitar out, but it's because Gibson owns Kramer that I'm able to have, you know, an Epif- I can play Epiphones and Gibsons and, and all this stuff. But, but also Gibson's so cool. There's a, a small company here in Aarhus called Baum Guitars that makes really cool, like P90 surf looking you know really psychedelic guitars and they knew i was basically living here and they contact hey man you know we'll you know we'll give you some bucks you know like could you help us out you know do these videos and i'm like i'm like i don't know you know so i contacted caesar and gibson i said hey you know these baum guys they're super cool they're not competitive with you and caesar's like hell yeah man 
go for it. You know what I mean? And right. Like, there's no other company in my history that would have been like, yeah, of course, do your thing, you know? And it doesn't affect what I do with Gibson. I mean, you know, Gibson knows that I play Gibson guitars, you know, it's, it's as simple as that. But that's the thing, though. But if you're a young artist and you're going to be associated with something, because usually when you have, a, you know, a signature anything, I don't care if it's a hat, there's going to be a lot of promo with your name on it for that product. You want to make sure that you're using that product. Yeah. You know, well, you might be able to get some Mesa boogies now that Gibson has acquired that company. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not the biggest boogie. I, I'm with VHT right now. You know, they have that new D50. And great. and we've done some great promo and kind of got them back on the map. And the amps are fucking killer. You know, but no, I, I, I know. I saw that. I was like, well, okay. It's amazing. It's like Coke and Pepsi, Gibson and Fender. They each, they each acquire so many other companies. Yeah. Fender's got like Gretsch and EVH. Mm-hmm. And- but it's but it, it's it's cool, you know. It, you know, we wouldn't have a lot of the the we wouldn't have Kramer without Gibson. There's no doubt about it. You right. know, uh, Mesa Boogie. You know, it's a tough market, man. For you know, people don't even want amplifiers anymore. You know, I mean, I use amplifiers live because I run my head brush through the amplifiers, so at least I still have the sense of air being pushed behind me and, you know, tube volume. But anybody under 30, they don't care. You know, they, you run that straight into like the effects return yeah, and just that's break it. it up. As simple as that. Well, the VHTs, I actually do that, you know, something called the four cable method where you can take the preamp and run it as a block in the pedal board. And the last gig we did, which was like a, a live stream, I did it that way and it was great. It, it worked really well. But for other stuff, like the Sunbomb record I have coming out with Michael Sweet from Striper, that's all head rush, you know, like tweaking and, you know, doing stuff with the amplifiers in the head rush that I could never get out of an amplifier. You know, it's just, it's weird. You know, like there's something to be said for, I mean, there's pros and cons with digital technology, but there's pros and cons with analog technology. That's why there's digital technology where... You know, I could play out of the angriest sounding diesel and I wouldn't be able to get that same sound that I got on the Sunbomb record just by luck. I was, did something and I was like, that's it. Save. Don't ever lose this and do this whole album with that sound. So it's just so much available, man. Well, we're looking forward to that record. I guess it's May 14th when yeah. that comes out and Michael Sweet, a shredder of a singer. <laughs> I had so, no there's idea. There's a couple of clips out there, or there's at least one clip, and yeah, it's he's such a, he's so amazing. The record, it's an interesting thing when you do a project with somebody where you write all this music, you get to work with somebody like that, but you don't know what it's going to be like. You know what I mean? So it's like, all right, I'm done. Your turn, you know? And I've done some things, and they come back, and I'm like, eh, maybe we shouldn't do this. You know, it doesn't gel. When the first song came back, I must have listened to it 25 times in a row. It's like, this guy's voice, you know, and Red. then they just kept coming in every other day. New, new songs. The record you play us a, blows my a mind. sneak preview riff from it. Yeah, I don't have a pick, like, but like something just, that you sent him. Yeah, yeah. Th- this one song called Life. Then it gets insane. Like super double picking in the rhythm, but even I can't. Too old. I recorded that a year ago. I can't do it now. <laughs> but no, you still got it. You still throw down. I I don't know why I keep telling myself. You know I'm gonna do a Neil Young style record. You know I've been saying that to myself for like 15 years. Like. Just write some cool songs, man. You know, just like, you know, go up yeah. on stage and play it and hit your fuzz pedal every now and then, and, you know. Well, he he takes some of the best solos ever. He'll just be like... Yeah. Like, if he's feeling it, then the whole arena is feeling it. That's it. That's what I'm saying. You know, it's like, like, like that's all I really want to do. <laughs> it's like, I just want to do that. You know, I'm perfectly happy. Because, I mean, honestly... I'm not that old yet, but I'm 55, and, you know, the L.A. Gun stuff 
live is pretty heavy and it's fast. It's it's faster than it is heavy. And I got to tell you, man, you know, after three shows, you know, I'm tired. Like, you know, I'm physically tired. It's like, like wow, that really, really beating me up now, you know. And so, like the sunbomb thing, I hope we never get asked to play live. I mean, it's brutal. It's like, I, I would just have to stand there, you know, kind of like just Tony Iommi, you know, just like smile and shred, you know. But like, but the way yeah. I play, I put my whole body into everything. And that's, and that's what sucks. That's where the pain comes, you know. And it's like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Yeah. I know, I know the feeling, man. I'm just a few years behind you, yeah. and uh, I was in high school in the late '80s. I I owned a Charvel with a pointy headstock and a and a Kaler. It had a Kaler on it. I love Kalers. Yeah, but um, so you got to break off some crazy '80s stories. Yeah. Tell, can you share some of like some of the top Spinal Tap moments, like crazy shit that happened on stage or off stage, or just hilarious stuff that you could have never written? into a movie that just happened in real life you know i mean the reality is it never stops you know i mean it's like there are so many events like stupid events like to compare to spinal tap you know we had a day off i think in oklahoma city this is a long time ago we had a day off in oklahoma city so we bought acid <laughs> we bought acid we're like hey got a day off most of us had never done acid before let's just take a bunch of acid <laughs> okay what year was this um roughly 89 i guess like around 89 and the thing was is that we had pre-planned this so it was like we were in maryland and there's like a boardwalk in maryland somewhere ocean city ocean city maryland that's exactly where we were and we had talked about the day before hey you know we should try to get some acid for the day off man kind of vibe (laughs) like oh all right, you know, whatever, you know, we'll run into somebody in Maryland, you know, that'll know somebody, but we didn't, but me and Kent, my guitar tech, we were just walking on the boardwalk and it was raining out. There was nobody out except this one guy, (laughs) this guy with bleached hair, tan, like a raisin. And he comes up to us. He's like, what are you guys doing? And I just said, I go, we're looking for some acid. (laughs) That guy goes, Really? I'm like, yeah, you know, we need 22 hits. And he goes, well, I can sell you that right now. I'm like, come on. He goes, I got it on me right now. Wow. Okay. We bought, we bought 19 hits of acid off the guy. He didn't have 22. He had 19. And me and Kent grab it. It We didn't know if it was, if he was lying or not. It was just a sheet, you know, with the little things. Little perforations. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, so we get we go back to the bus like you know we were little kids i mean it was 1989 i was 23 maybe get back to the bus hey guys we got the acid everybody's like now we're all scared we're all scared of the acid you know like like, who's gonna take it first you know and we're all like no it's not like that we all gotta take it or nobody takes it you know so we took it and uh everybody kind of we were in oklahoma city now you know we had the acid we took the acid, we got to Oklahoma City, and about an hour later, everybody started feeling some effects. I tripped out a little bit, but I put like some weird Hendrix VHS on in the bus, and I was like, oh, all right, I'm cool. But then, you know, we spend this day in this parking lot of this hotel, it turns into nighttime. We walk to a gas station to get, you know, like a mini mart kind of thing, and I remember walking up to this cop in a cop car. And, and back then, you got to remember, I was just always wearing a leather jacket with leather pants and stiletto heels. And I walk up to this guy, and his eyes were, like, so blue. I can't even, like, you know, like, shh. Walk up to him, and I, I felt so good. I walk right up to a cop, and I go, man, you got the bluest eyes I've ever seen. <laughs> and the cop looks at me and goes, goes, son, whatever you guys are doing, I'm sure everything's wonderful right now. He goes, but I got to tell you, you got to be careful in this neighborhood. Just be careful. They're like, whoa. It's like total Bill and Ted's, right? Like, the nice cop. We're tripping on acid, you know? So anyways, we go back to the bus. And uh, a couple hours later, everybody starts coming down. It lasted like six or seven hours. And we're driving. And we had a really long drive. And uh, we stop at a... The sun comes up like around 6.30 or 7. And we stop at a McDonald's. (laughs) And me and Kelly, the bass player... We, we go into the McDonald's and we're waiting in line and somebody recognized us. And 
I don't remember if it was a guy or a girl. They go, Are you guys in LA Guns? You know, and we're like, yeah. And I remember looking at Kelly and his face was so creasy. <laughs> and this guy or girl goes, man, you all look a lot different in, in real life. And I just remember that freaked me out so hard. Like, what do you mean? What do you mean we look different? You know, what's, because, what's, you know, it's still tripping a little bit, you know. And then we went back on the bus and, and Kelly and I were the only ones awake and we're like, what did that person mean we look different? And I go, well, your, your face is really greasy right now. I remember I just said it to him, like, your face looks really greasy. He goes, it does? And I go, well, it did inside in that light or whatever. So we start driving and we weren't tired. And Kelly goes, hey, do we have any more? And I'm like, yeah, there's two hits left, you know. He goes, fuck it, let's take them. We took them and we fell asleep, and that was that. Yeah, I mean that—that's the most Spinal Tap weird Twilight Zone kind of yeah. thing I could ever remember. I mean, of course, there's the typical, you know, '80s shenanigans with, you know, girls doing silly things, guys doing silly things, and no sharks involved or anything though. No sharks. No sharks. Take us to the Sunset Strip. You know, I was a. Uh up in the Bay Area. So mm -hmm. I got a sense of that, but it was a totally different scene. Yeah. Oh, it, it was, you. but I mean, but the stone scene and what was it? The What was the place across the street from the stone? Um, the Mabuhe? Mabuhe Gardens and Off-Broadway. And there was a little bit of a little bit of a glammy thing happening in San Francisco, I remember at the time, because we would go up there like every three or four months, you know, to play the stone or something. And there was there was like a little bit of a scene, but but L.A. Your scene was better in a way. The L.A. scene was all encompassing lifestyle. Go to the market with your stiletto heels on and just feel normal because that's the way people looked. You know, it was common to just look ridiculous all the time, and it was fun. You know, it was really fun. And I remember thinking, standing in line buying something across from the Troubadour. There was a market there. Looking at like all the people in there dressed up in leather and some of them. How long will this last? I mean, I was only like 16 or 17, you know, at that time. How long is this going to last? You know, how long are people like, is this going to last forever? People just going to look cool? Like, is everybody going to look like Nikki Six and Vince Neil forever? And so that was <laughs> really cool. You know, I mean, it was like. It's going to last until. Tell us about that. You are you right. had a front row seat. Uh -huh. What 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 was it like culturally and musically and everything for your genre, especially all those bands and the stilettos when grunge I, happened, Kurt well, Cobain and everybody. I mean, I know a lot of people complain about you know this kind of grunge thing came and killed everybody, and it's like, but it's just not true. You know, I had Smells Like Teen Spirit on cassette before it came out, three months before it came out. And we went to tour Europe with Skid Row, and we loved that record. You know, all the guys in LA Gun, our sound man rang out the PA on that tour every day with Smells Like Teen Spirit. The snare drum was unbeatable. So when we were in London, I bought a Nirvana t-shirt. You know, nobody really knew who they were, but we did, and we loved them. And I got, like, on the cover of Kerrang! wearing the Nirvana shirt. And in those two months between the time we got to England and by the time the magazine out, Smells Like Teen Spirit was starting to explode. And I remember Kerrang said something like, is this guy clairvoyant or something? You know, like, like, but to me... That's awesome. The only thing that kills a scene is the scene. You know, it's like you run out of gas. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, especially a lifestyle scene. And that's what, you know, glam rock of every era it was always a lifestyle scene. You know, I don't care if it's Ziggy Stardust, Gary Glitter, yeah. you know, um, some bands survive and some don't, you know, and, and the bands that survive are always about the music. You know what I mean? And, and that's, you know, Bowie really proves that, you know what I mean? The Stones really prove that, you know, you can go through different fashion statements, you know, and, and different lifestyle changes as long as, you pay attention to your music and your music's good a good song is always a good song but in the case of our version of hair metal or glam rock or whatever with the influx of lesser quality music being pumped through 
through the airwaves, well, it gets old, it gets tired, it gets boring, and it and you know, music lost its message in a way. <clears throat> and that's and that's what happened, is it's like, you know, look at Warrant, you know, the thing about Janie is like his lyrics when it came to the serious stuff was serious. And it and it had a message and it had broken heart written all over it and, and stuff like that. And and that's legit. You know, but when everybody's trying to replicate cherry pie and nothing but a good time, well, those songs had already been written and it's like, it's time for something else. So when, yeah, when something like Smells Like Teen Spirit, it's so socially conscious, you know, and uh, Guns N' Roses certainly didn't suffer. You know what I mean? We didn't Yeah, there's suffer. always bands that, that make it through, yeah. like you said, because they have, you know, you guys have been doing it for 30 years, 40 years now. I so can't do the long, math. man. So but long. How much do you think the record industry like is kind of eats its own tail? Like they're chasing all the cherry pie songs, like you said. And meanwhile, up in the Bay Area, all these bands were happening, like including Primus, which is one of the few mm-hmm. bands that kept it going. I know you like Primus. I do. There's a story of you and Flea watching Primus for like the first time or something. That's right. But all these bands up there were getting these big deals. Fungo right. Mungo, Psycho Fungopus, Atlantic Records and everything. And all of a sudden, when Nirvana hit, it's like they just forgot about the Bay Area scene. That was I noticed that. like They just all disappeared and just started signing everything in Seattle. I thought they should spread the love a little more equally. I just saw that the industry jumped on this scene in Seattle to the biggest degree. Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's the business because they're in, in the money business. They're not in the friends business. You know what I mean? So uh, lifestyle is all-encompassing, right? So... When you look at Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains and Nirvana specifically, and Soundgarden, of course, it's a lifestyle shift. It's now we're going to sell to these kids that are relating to this message, and we, we need more. We need more. And every element that these bands are, we need all those elements. And the big element was Seattle, the rain, the depression, the sadness, you know. So, unfortunately... At that point, it had really become a business because if you could go through all the, the, the accountings of all the bands signed from 83, 82, 83 to 91, they were big deals. Like you'd said, you know, a bunch of bands in Bay Area, a bunch of bands everywhere were getting, you know, seven digits for two records, three records. You know, we, we got millions of bucks for, for a seven record deal. And who paid it back? Who lost their ass? You know, like, so you bet your ass. 92 comes around, 91, 92 comes around, and there's somebody with a new song out with a different image. They're like, hey, let's do this. We need to make some money. And then all of a sudden, even with all that success, all those big albums, all that stuff, slam. The music industry, the the record industry, the recording industry, the manufacturing industry, um, the publicist industry, the agent industry, slam to the ground. You know, it's it's. I don't recommend this business now to anybody. There, the, if you don't have a following to support you at this point, you know, I don't care who's getting one billion, you know, streams. You aren't making any money, man. You know, you can't you can't go buy a house and have two kids and fill up the gas tank once a week and, and fill the refrigerator and go to Hawaii on vacation once a year. I don't care who you are. You know, so if you're not selling tickets live and t-shirts, there's no way that you can sustain being a professional musician. There's just no way. Um, I mean, we were kind we weren't the last of a breed. You know, I, I would say, you know, there were things that came out of the 90s, third eye blind, you know, stuff like that that still have sustainable, you know, following to where they can make a living. They can be professional musicians in a rock and roll band and do that. But it's a very rare, rare dinosaur these days, you know, to come out of the gate. Like, you know, a good example would be, I bet Rival Sons is doing fine. You know, like they're, but they're, it's rare, very rare. Right. It's a rare beast. Yeah. The successful new rock band. (laughs) So, but you've kept it together on and off through many adventures yeah. over the decades. And it, I'm reading into this title of one of your new records, which sounds great. It just encompasses everything that I love about like late 80s rock from Guns N' Roses to like also having a little Stonesy stuff. And 
and which what I would say would be the missing piece. Yeah. Which is your album, and it's piece as in P E A C E. Hey, far out. And man. I can't help but wonder: is that like reflecting to the piece that was maybe not a hundred percent there between you and the singer Phil Lewis yeah. over the years? Because now you guys are back. Yeah. How did you guys go from being bandmates back in the day, creating your first two records that were so big? Yeah. And then everything in the turmoil that happened over the decades. And then suddenly you guys are best friends again. What was that like? It was tough. You know, I mean, we, we had, see, the first record, Cocked and Loaded, Hollywood Vampires. It was like one, two, three, punch. You know, we came out. And then the fourth record, Vicious Circle, was that time we're talking about, you know, where the industry turned upside down trying to figure out what they're doing. And we put out a record called Vicious Circle that did fine. But we had inner turmoil growing pains. I was 27. We all know that magical number for musicians is like complete psychosis. So basically we got dropped at that point and um, the band split up in a million different directions. And, and me and uh, Steve, the drummer kept it going for a while and Phil came back and I went off to do a side project really with uh, Nikki Six and we did one record, then I did a second record. Then I found out I don't need to go into all the. I, I can't go into all the details. I'm in the at the end of a lawsuit, a very nice one. And so Phil and I, we exchanged words. This was you know the age of the internet, really starting to be a tool for good or bad. But Phil and I, we really never had that much of a of a beef. It was more he was protecting the project he was in called L.A. Guns and. I was motherfucking Steve Riley on a daily basis, you know. Anybody can go back and read everything I've said. I'm very proud of everything I said, you know. No one gets away with bullshit with me. It's just the way it is. I don't care. I, I don't need to keep my cool. There is no such thing as mystique anymore. So it's just like, yeah, fuck that guy, period. Um, but, so... Well, fill us in, for those who don't know, what, what, did, what went down with you guys and Riley or Phil and Riley or I don't know. I wasn't just, there. I can't, we're, we're literally at the end of a, of a lawsuit against Riley right now. Like, like, gotcha. Things will be all cleared up like in four or five days. So it's just like, let's not, people will know what happened. But anyways, we get to this point in 2014, I'm playing and raiding the rock vault in Vegas and Phil moves to Las Vegas all of a sudden. Sends me an email. Hey man, you know, I'm here. And I'm like, Hey, you know, cool. And then, uh, I guess it's 2015, the Hard Rock Cafe in Las Vegas is having like a 25th anniversary. I had no idea the Hard Rock had been around that long in Vegas, you know, at that little cafe. They offered us a bunch of bucks to do, get back together, just Phil and I, to play five LA Gun songs. And we both agreed to do it and, and, and we, we rehearsed with some, some cool guys and, and we did it and it was a lot of fun. But we both noticed something at rehearsal that like, whoa. You know, when you sing those songs and when I play these songs, they sound different than when anybody else does them. You know, like there's something about this. We agreed on that. And then I guess it was early September 2017, we got offered to play this thing. I think it's called like some hair metal thing in L.A. at Irvine Meadows. It's like big hairball or something at Irvine Meadows. And I said, and I talked to Phil about it. I, I go, look. It's a test. If anybody gives a shit, you know, we're going to know. And the only way we're going to know if somebody gives a shit is if we headline the small stage and we can steal the thunder from whoever's on the main stage at that time. And he's like, that takes balls, man. And I'm like, well, do we want to know the truth? You know, or do we want to just go on the main stage at 3.30 in the afternoon and, you know, 104 degree sun just to say, hey, here we are. And he's like, well, fuck that, mate. I don't want to go on to the sun. And I said, me either. I'm not going on yeah, to the sun. He's from England. Yeah. I mean, he's, <laughs> you know, he's whiter than me. So we told the promoters, look, you know, we'll do it, but this is what we want to do. And if it's okay with you, we'll do that and we'll do the show. And everything came up roses, you know, went on at 830 on the second stage, emptied the pavilion. I don't want to say who was on at the pavilion because they're friends of mine. But they were bummed, and, but we had to do it. You know, we had 8,000 people move from there to this place, and it looks like a 10-pound sausage stuffed in a bag that holds five pounds. It was awesome. So we did that, 
the reviews came out. The reviews were great. And the next thing was Frontiers calls and offers us a record deal, you know, for some bucks. And before I even told Phil, we had an offer came in from Cleopatra, who's we're friends with. So I didn't want to do that. I, I hate working with friends. It's, it's you know, business and friends are not good. And then we had another, another offer came in from somewhere that was the most money, but they, they just had money. They, it wasn't like a thing. And so I said, Phil, look, you know, we can do this. But if we do this, you can't do that. You know, he's like, well, you know, you're going to leave me for Glenn Danzig someday. You know, I'm like, no, I'm not. You know, I go, we'll just do LA Guns. We'll make some records. And if they're good records, then they're good records. People care about us. They'll buy them. We'll be happy. And that's that. Well, I don't know, but okay, let's let's try, you know. And then, so the missing piece logo is, as you'll see, it's a chunk taken out of the logo. The guns, you can see it floating out, the missing piece. And so that's that kind of like, so fucking clever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally. But then, you know, we charted really high with that album. And then we had to do the next one, The Devil You Know, which came out, I guess, a year and a half, two years ago now. And it charted even higher. It did great. So, you know, our fan base is really there. The records are definitely more defined than the, than the older records. You know, they definitely have a darker tone. Um, just as fun. Better production, you know. Um, and we just are now finishing the third one. And Made, Made in Milan came out in between The Missing Piece and The Devil You Know. So, like, that gig, yeah. we were on, you know, we were like, you know, six months into the reunion just like yeah fired up you can hear it great recording i guess one of the new songs is speed that was from the missing piece that was the one that's one of the ones that's also on the live record yeah are you warmed up enough to show us that a little bit oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i'll tell you a really quick story about that i had written that man like 2008 the riff and i put it in a folder on my computer that just said bad 80s riffs and so when i was Looking for stuff, you know, ideas and stuff like that. I just, I opened it up and it was the riff. And I was, I said, this could be something. Sorry, I'm confident. We got the heater on. Let's see. <laughs> That's instant. It's like, it's like, is that Judas Priest or LA Guns? You know, it's. Just works. It's that whole, you know, kind of Randy Rhodes diary of a madman figure, and then just switching down to the minor six. And... You know, any song yeah. with that chord progression wins. The, these are the elements of, of rock and hard rock and metal, you know, it's like they. they I mean, yeah, eventually you learn. And the G chord. Oh, it's so big. So big. The Malcolm chord, as I call it. Yeah, it really is. You know, I mean, there's, there's things. It's the greatest. You know, I, I really, like the new record that won't be out till after summer. I always think that every, every time I finish a record that I really used all my influences. You know, like, like oh yeah, you know, I really, this is Sabbathy and that's Zeppi and this is Van Halen-ish. You know, like I, I really take pride in, in how I put music together because, you know, even back in the day, it was too late. You know, it, it, to be original, there wasn't a, a lot of room to experiment in straight-ahead heavy rock. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, well, if I do this, this sounds like this. If I do this, this sounds like that. So really early on in, in my mid-20s, I just adopted that, like, hey, I have influences. This is what it is. My heroes were influenced by blues guys. They all take those riffs and turn them upside down. So whatever comes... That's who I am. So I've been a lot more comfortable in the last five years, you know, writing and things sounding similar to other things. It's just the way it is, you know. And I think it's also good for our fans, too, because most of our stuff sounds familiar right away. It's like, huh, what does that sound like? You know, huh, that's weird. Um, but this one, there's a little bit of ACDC going on in some of the stuff, you know, um, where I did, like, do the... The basic, you know, Les Paul in one speaker, Telly in the other speaker, straight Marshall tone, and it works so well together. You know, it's, just, it's simple, but it's big, 
And those frequency exchanges are different enough to where it really makes this big sound. So I did a lot of that. And the reason I did a lot of that is because I was in Denmark, you know, and, I mean, we have a big apartment, but I can't blast amps in here, you know, so everything was done on a head rush. And it's like, okay, you know, what do I do? How do I make LA guns sound LA guns without, you know, miking up amps and stuff like that? Well, technology, man, it's awesome. And uh, it was a lot of fun, you know, putting it together. And it's just like right now I'm getting mixes with Phil's vocals on them now, you know, back from the States. And I'm just like, fuck yeah, thank God. You know, because this could all go horribly wrong. <laughs> you know, Phil's recording his own vocals. He's at his house. Right. Our engineer sent him the things he needed in his room to be able to professionally record. And Phil's not exactly a motivated builder of things, you know. Technician. Yeah. But he did it. And and he's singing and he's singing correctly. And just thank God, man. You know, the 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 one thing I don't ever want to do this deep into LA Guns is put out a shit record. You know, it would just be so heartbreaking. No, I think you guys have really gotten in touch with what you love and what's true to you. And it's, you can really hear so. it in the new records and people obviously are responding and yeah. let alone the proof of the chart positions. Well, that's good for us. You know, we, I'm not going to lie, you know, 32 years, 33 years in, you know, charting. I mean, it's, you know, you don't sell as many records as you used to. But in relation to what other people are selling, it's still the same graph. So, you know, we, exactly. we're charting exactly those two re- last two records, exactly like our first two records. It's like fucking A. Awesome. So yeah. to us, it means a lot. you have any tips on playing with a violin bow through a loud 100-watt VHT or whatever yeah. you're doing these days? Yeah. And also, the, tell us about the theremin. Yeah, yeah okay. Well, the bow... First of all, grab any bow. You know, there's there's always been the conversation, well, do you use a violin bow or a cello bow? And it's like, well, you know, violin bow is lighter, a little bit easier to control, but you don't have a, as much as a growl. Like, and you have to use so much rosin, which is the the stuff you put on a bow to make it grip a string. And, I, and I've seen some Zeppelin tribute bands and stuff where the guy plays with a bow and he doesn't. And, what happens is the bow will start sliding this way back and forth if there's not enough rosin. So you can't keep a straight line. Like you kind of go like, whoops, whoops. You can't stay perpendicular to the strings. That's right. So, so the, the first thing is like you got to get those strings tight, you know, the hair on the bow, and you got to use tons of rosin, tons and tons. Gretchen Mann is an expert as well. Um, she says hello, by the way. Tell her I said hi. I love her. And Daniele. They're my Absolutely. children. Um, but the bow, you know, I mean, it's Paige just did whatever. And that's what I, that's what I love about it. You know, when you watch like the early, you know, late 60s stuff, the Telecaster, he has no echoplex yet, just a wah-wah pedal and the bow. And it's just like, ah, you know, (laughs) and you know, if you can control at least your low string and your high string through your amplifier and you start playing musical with it. That's where you want to be because if you can be musical without the delay, you know, with a lot of gain and stuff, then put the delay on, then turn your amp up. Man, it is awesome. What I do, the only thing I do that's different is I have a stereo delay and I run a low octave under when I'm playing. So it's really, it's gnarly. It's like, it's metal bow playing is what it is. It's like heavy metal with a bow. And it's basically the same thing with the theremin, you know, is um, I run it through a stereo delay with a low octave. Um, And I used to play the Sonic Wave theremin that I acquired from Frank Levi when I was 21 years old. Um, But it finally is acting finicky. So I went on eBay and I started buying these theremins by a company called Zep Theremin or something like that. 
And they don't have quite the octave range, but they do basically the same thing. So I use an octave, a low octave pedal with it, and it's it's pretty gnarly. But you know, I mean, those are gimmicks and those are tricks and they're, and they're fun. And, and uh, it's always better for me to do stuff like that because I, I mean, I'm always going to do a stupid guitar solo live because it's what I do. But when you whip out the theremin, you know, or a bow, people that aren't musicians necessarily, they really think it's cool. You know, they're really like, whoa, what, whoa, that guy's playing with a violin bow, or what's that radio he's waving his hand around, you know? And those are gimmicks, you know, and gimmicks are cool. I think you should get a violin like Nigel Tufnell and actually just with enough rosin, it might work. If I had enough balls, I would. Do you have a Do you have a rosin endorsement? I don't, but I need one desperately. <laughs> Tracy Guns rosin. Now, looking back on on the glam metal '80s rock scene, talking about familiar, like I'm I'm always amazed by Steel Panther. Hmm? Controversy aside, whatever about some you know their songs, they do it so well. Yes, they do. And uh, I feel like it's almost like a time machine with a healthy dose of comedy. That's right. If you see them, they like they put you right there. Um, you were there. What's your perception of of what they do, or what interests you, or impresses you about? Well, them? See, I know your former singer Ralph is in the band. Yeah, I mean, it's to me, it's magic, you know, because Russ and uh, and Ralph they had a serious '80s band at one point, Seven Percent Solution. I might be wrong. I think that's what they were called, and they were very serious about their glam metal rock at that time. And then Ralph went on to do Atomic Punks, and really understood the the importance of comedy and humor with an audience you know he really picked up on that like this raw thing there's something to this you know and ralph has the personality to do it so when he was in la Guns, that was one of the funnest times i ever had was that year ralph was in la guns i mean it was fun period it was just fun what would he do you know it just he could he knew how to talk to a crowd he knew how to make people laugh. He knew how to make people... Every L.A. Gun show was a party. You know what I mean? And it was cool. And I'm glad that we did that. But Steel Panther thing is... First of all, the musicianship is so top-notch. It's so top-level. It's so intelligent. And then when you have music that that's, that's that intelligent and that together, that tight, that well-recorded, and then you have songs about eating pussy you know, and, and stupid shit. Yeah. I mean, that's really what a lot of the eighties rock was. It's just that they're just being blatant. Like, you know, all these guys back then thought they were being clever. No, they weren't being clever. They were being stupid. Steel Panther is actually being clever by being blatant about it. And it's show business. I had this conversation with Joe Bonamassa because I was interested in a guitar player. That's a very good guitar player that I wanted to help out. And I called Joe. I said, hey, Joe, this guy. And he goes, he's got no shtick. And I'm like, yeah. He goes, he, goes, he just has no personality. You know, what are you going to do with him? I'm like, yeah, I guess I go, just being good isn't enough, you know. And, and he goes, no, at the end, you have to hold an audience. You know, you have to connect with people, you know. And, and I mean, I already knew that, but but he really made it apparent that what we do there's some comic relief involved or there's some messaging for some people or something. There's some, there's gotta be something that connects to a person's psyche. So Steel Panther is pure entertainment, you know, and if it is controversial, even better. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't be bad boys without bad stories. Yeah. And Russ is so great on the oh, guitar chair. So good. For sure. So I'd probably be remiss if I didn't at least ask you one question about like, I always assume that, Guns N' Roses yeah. wouldn't have had that great name if you had not been basically the first guitarist, right? That's absolutely correct. Yeah. Did you know Axl Rose before he became Axl when he was Bill? No. Yeah, he was Bill, but he had a, he had a band before I knew him, before I met him, called AXL. And uh-huh. Izzy had mentioned before any of us were playing together that he was thinking of calling himself Axel. And I thought, that's a cool name. You know, why not? You know, why, why wouldn't he call himself Axel? Axel. 
And he goes, and this is, you know, something about his stepdad, Rose, or something. Axel Rose. I go, that's a great name, you know. And, I thought uh, it was Axel Foley from Beverly Hills Cop. I always Eddie Murphy. think that. I think I always think that Axel F. That was the only other Axel I'd ever heard of at that time. Yeah, pretty much, right? And but yeah, and then what happened was is first Axel. We became friends through Izzy. Izzy lived with me and my mom's, and uh, Izzy was in London. They had Hollywood Rose at some point, and then uh, Izzy bailed to play with London. And then my singer in L.A. Guns, this guy Mike Jagos, he got fired somehow for a minute. And Axel wasn't doing anything. So he came and sang for L.A. Guns for about six or seven months. And then Axel got fired by our manager. <laughs> but we all lived together. Me and the manager and Axel, we all lived in the same house that our manager paid for. And I don't, it's a long, stupid story. But Axel got fired this one night. We're all driving home. And... The manager guy, he's like, blah, 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 you and you and you. And you're like, Tracy, you know, why don't you blah, 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 stand up for me? And I'm just like, hey, man, we had to do what we had to do. You know, you, you know, there's no point in firing Axel. Well, fuck you, Axel, you know, blah, blah. So we get home and uh, we had this guy temporarily staying at the house. It was a Coke dealer. And uh, so we get in, you know, we played the Troubadour, you know, so it was 2.30 in the morning at the earliest by the time we got home. And we get some blow from this guy, and Axel's like, what are we going to do? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, I don't know. I mean, let's do something else, you know? And he goes, well, you know, we should just keep writing. And, like, and we had just finished recording an EP. So we knew how to do it ourselves. We knew how to book a studio and, and do all that stuff. So, like, we figured, hey, you know, we know how to do this. We can do this on our own. You know, fuck this guy. And uh, I think, I don't know which one of us came up with it, but it was like, we call the label Guns N' Rose Records. You know, like, yeah, Guns N' Rose Records. And then I said, wait a minute, man. Why don't we just start a new band called Guns N' Rose, you know? And Izzy, that night, was fired from London. Or, London, or he quit London. We played with London that night, and some shit went down. I go, I'll call Izzy tomorrow, and we'll start this new band, Guns N' Rose. And, and real quickly, uh, what shit went down at a gig with another band? Well, Axel and Nader from London had some weird shit going on for like a couple months before this gig. I think it was over a girl, of course. Um, I don't remember exactly, but some weird shit had gone down. So when the open, there was an opening band before us and Axel saw London or uh, what's his name? The singer from London, I just Nader. He claims that Nader detuned all my guitars. You know, they were in a rack next to the stage. Sure enough, we go opening song. My guitar is like, it's Z demolished, you know, just like, oh, <laughs> and oh Axel, that is a low blow. It was a low blow. I mean, I don't know who did it, but that, that is, I don't either. You know, I'm, I'm not taking sides with anybody, but so Axel gives us rant, typical Axel, fuck these guys. I saw him do it. We ripped up a London poster, you know, and of course I'm like, you know, hanging over me like, yeah, fuck these guys. You know, I, I weigh like 85 pounds. Like I'm going to do anything. And, uh, so, that's why Axel got fired because our manager thought that that was unprofessional. But but Izzy knew that Nader had done that. That's why he had quit the band, London. So basically, we started Guns N' Roses the next day, you know. And then uh, Oli Bike was the original bass player, and Rob Gardner. Those were the guys playing in L.A. Guns at the time. They were the Guns N' Roses guys. And Rob's girlfriend gave him an ultimatum after a couple months, like, if you're gonna stay in those guys, those bad guys you know i'm gonna break up with you so he quit the band and then we got adler who had already been in hollywood rose with axel and izzy and then Oli, who my son's named after here he was a danish guy he's played with king diamond he quit he got caught up in drugs and like typical story and then we got duff and uh i stuck around for about six or seven months and then shit got sideways man like i, I couldn't do it well, of course, I'm going to ask you, what do you mean by sideways? You know, we were a group of friends, you know, like we were, Izzy and I were kind of like bookends, you know, like, you know, we did everything together and then Axel came into the picture and then me and Axel were best friends and then Izzy was doing London and blah, blah, blah. And we started getting really successful, you know, really quick. Like after the whole LA Guns thing, like the next level was Guns N' Roses and it really was a next level. It really... 
it got traction and people cared about the band and we were selling a lot of tickets. And at that time, Axel just like, he took over, man. He just took over that stage in a verbal way, you know, where the ranting and the, you know, calling people out and the, you know, so I think the last couple shows I did, you know, back then you would play 45 minutes. You didn't even really play an hour. And we would play maybe four or five songs and Axel would talk like the rest of the time. And then we started arguing and I was just like, it wasn't fun. You know, it just became like, we're just supposed to play music, man. We're just supposed to be great. And uh, drugs got involved. Things went, things went sideways. I just couldn't be part of it, you know. And, and I, never, I never really regretted it in any way because it's like, I'm really proud of the success that that band had, you know. And I'm proud that I was part of it. I'm, I was there. I created that band. Um, but to be part of something and not have to be a casualty, you know, uh, or be abused verbally by another bandmate in that way or something like that always made me feel like I escaped something and, and was still able to take credit somehow for like being part of something that was great, you know, and then having the success with LA Guns just reinforced that, you know, I mean, people don't understand, you know, that musicians, all of us are horribly insecure people. You know, and, you know, we put on this great front, like, hey, you know, uh, we're musicians, we're artists. We do not have self-esteem. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Um, so, you know, those kinds of things, you know, having the band with Nikki Six and Michael Shanker and all that stuff, it's just great for my self-esteem. It's just, it's validating, you know, and uh, it's enabled me to really have a, a fucking bitchin' career playing the guitar. Yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah, Guns N' Roses camp and, and that whole scene, there was, there was risks involved. You know, I yeah. interviewed Slash, God, three or four times. And he, yeah, he said, you know, he obviously left for several years and he yeah. said he would be dead if he had stayed. Yeah. Said he would literally not have survived. And so many people, some of whom you have referenced, didn't make it through. I'm yeah. very impressed at how you made it through all that craziness and have a great band going. Because I was scared. Yeah. That's why. You know, I was scared. And self-preservation. Yeah. I mean, you know, I saw people die. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to die. It's hard to come back from dying. That's true. Wise words. <laughs> yeah. No replays. Yeah. No replays. Well, yeah. Fantastic. I really appreciate you doing this uh, show today with us, Tracy. My pleasure. I know pleasure. I kept you longer than an hour, so that's killer. Rock and roll. Um, would you like to take us out on a little No Mercy, maybe? or? Oh, How's that one go? I wonder how many times I've played that. Or anything you want. <laughs> Rad. Well, thanks for being here today with me. I really appreciate it. Keep it alive till you're 95, crazy. That's the idea. Guitar is safe.